Hi, I'm Anna. And I'm Kristen. We're best friends who both happen to have been born with limb differences. Join us as we talk about the many ways our limb differences impact our lives. From medical intervention to bullying to dating, we're covering it all. And we hope you'll share your stories with us along the way. This is Life and Limb. Hi, everybody. Hello, and welcome back to Life and Limb. We are on, I believe, episode 13 now. Is that right? Yeah, 13. I'm Kristen Green. I'm Anna Stiles. And today we are talking to Kim Weald about representation of disability on stage. Which is something that I know, Kristen, this has been something you have wanted to do since we started the podcast. You have told me about Kim in a variety of different situations and just how much you (laughs) thoroughly enjoyed working with her. So um, tell me a little bit about why it was so important to you to have Kim on the podcast. Well, I, um, I just remember in my theater experiences, Kim's one of those people who um, you just your paths crossed for a short amount of time, but you just always remember them and you just have such fond memories of them. And I specifically thought of Kim to have as a guest on the podcast because the uh, production that we worked on together had such in-depth and beautiful movement integrated into the telling of the story. We did The Good Woman of Szechuan together and there were um, dances and just these just these movement portions that I remember being um, one of the main characters being a little intimidated, but also being very excited to have the opportunity as someone with a limb difference that affects my lower leg, ankle and foot, just to have someone who would be able to work with me and who embraced, you know, the possibilities of tweaking things and working with what you have and just and utilizing everyone's abilities to the fullest. I was just so excited to have that experience. And it it meant a lot to me. So yeah, when we when we talked about doing some episodes specifically related to us as performers and who we might want to talk to, Kim was just an obvious choice. Obvious choice. So for me for me. Yeah. Yes. And Kim is here with us now. Hi Kim. How are you doing? I am well, thank you. Hello, Anna. Hello, Kristen. Hi. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today. I know this is really exciting for both of us Um, as performers with limb differences. It's really amazing to be able to speak to somebody who um, works with performers in the disability and limb difference community. Um, it's, It's something that I think is really important for a lot of reasons, and we will certainly get into that. But um, first, every single episode we do, we have a couple of segments that we like to kick things off with. So first is, let's just catch up. Let's catch up. Yeah. So Kristen, why don't you kick us off? What's something that's been going on with you lately? So my dog and I, we go on at least two walks a day. And I was thinking about um, how with all the snow and the layers of, of ice and everything, Um, my ankle has been a little sore lately and Mm -hmm. it's because it can't, you know, I don't have any movement in my ankle. I can't bend and twist it to adapt it to the the various shapes that our landscape is taking at the moment due to the snow. And then I, yesterday I had to take my dog to the vet, um, because he has bad skin allergies. And then I, I felt, I was thinking about, how I'd been so wrapped up in how this weather is affecting me. And then my poor dog, he's got um, a skin allergy and he now has a growth on one of his toes that has become infected and it was bleeding the other day after our walk. So yeah, so I was just thinking about how tough this weather has been on him and just what a journey my little poor dog has had this winter. Oh, poor Um, man. Well, yeah, he was on two meds for his... I don't know if you can hear him. He's talking right now. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. He's on all these meds and that they said that his uh, skin infection was getting better and then it got worse. And now he has this toe growth and this poor little dog is just suffering at the moment. Not I mean, not, it's not horrible. He's fine. He's still in good spirits, but just this poor little thing. So I've decided I'm not going to complain anymore about having to walk twice a day because it's a... Aww. It is a blessing to have my dog with me and this poor, if he can do it, then I can do it. So. Oh, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. If, if yeah. Finn can muster it up, you know, 
poor guy. But yeah, the snow has to be challenging, um, especially when you don't have an ankle that flexes. I, I twisted mine the other day walking through the snow and I thought about you a little bit just thinking, oh gosh, what would happen if it didn't have the mobility? But yeah, it's oh, rough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my catch up is kind of short and sweet this week too. I, um, I, have been looking for ways to exercise during the winter because I, I'm kind of a, I call myself a runner in the broadest sense of the term. I do run. I, <laughs> I don't run fast, but I move. And, um, you know, when it's icy and snowy out, that makes it quite a bit more difficult. And so for Christmas, my husband actually bought me this game for the Nintendo switch. It's called ring fit adventure. And it is a, an exercise adventure game. And it's, very cool. It's a little bit, it's, I think it's tailored for all ages sort of thing. So it's a little cheesy. It's a little bit like, you know, kid friendly as well. But this dang game, I have gotten significantly and noticeably stronger since oh, playing wow. this. And um, it uses sort of a, um, the concept of like a Pilates wheel that they use in Pilates for quite a few exercises, they take that and they make it almost the controller itself. So the way you move this ring and everything is what happens and it offers quite a bit of resistance. And so you're pushing, you're pulling, and then you have a leg strap that tracks your movements. So you do squats, you do all this kind of stuff. And um, for the first time in a long time, when I flex my little arm, I can feel a muscle there. Oh, wow. That's exciting. <laughs> because um, I that has always, always been my weaker side for obvious reasons. And it used to be that I'd try very, very hard to flex and not much would happen. And <laughs> since I've started this silly little game, all of a sudden I have a little bit of muscle showing there. And I'm, I'm pretty proud of that and kind of amazed that just something for my Nintendo Switch is helping me get in shape. Well, you had talked about it. I have a Switch too, and I remember you talking about it. And I looked it up, and it was it was more expensive than I thought it was going to be. So I just it thought, oh, I don't, I don't know. But now that you're saying that, I might have to reconsider getting it because you know I'm I'm in decent shape. But one thing I've noticed recently is I just I don't feel as strong as I used to, mm -hmm. and that is equally as important as the cardio or eating right. Uh, and right. you you kind of forget about just when you neglect your muscles, just, you just do not feel at your best. So exactly. I'll have to, I'll have to look at that again. Cause that yeah. sounds, it sounds fun. And if you're seeing a difference, then I'm very interested in checking that out. It was originally something that I thought I would get to like do on my off days of running. Cause I take rest days just so I don't injure myself. And right. I was just like, this will be my easy little workout to do in between. No, that is the workout. That's the one. Like <laughs> it's, it's pretty intense. So that's awesome. I've been having fun with it. All right. So Kim, um, what has been going on with you lately? Do you have a catch up to share with us? So, yes. Yeah, so I, so I, I teach at, um, Carnegie Mellon. I run the John Wells directing program at Carnegie Mellon university. So I work with both the undergrad and the grad directors. And then I also have a piece that I've been working on for six, almost seven years called American more M O O R. That's written by and performed by Keith Hamilton Cobb, which uses Othello as a metaphor to talk about race in America. It's a pretty remarkable and stunning piece of writing. And I feel I can say that because I did not write it. Um, <laughs> but it, it's published and it's available through Methuen, Bloomsbury Methuen. And I highly recommend it. it. It really speaks to what has been going on for millennia in this country, but also within theater and how, you know, what the biases are, mm -hmm. uh, who gets to make theater, the systemic racism and the white supremacy within the theater industrial complex. Um, but also, you know, for me, just as, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the We See You White American Theater document um, that is addressing, uh, it's, a, it's a series of demands uh, for change mm. in, in American theater, just as in the civil rights movement, as the disabilities movement unfolded in, into the civil rights movement. When we have anti-racist practices uh, that we activate, everyone who is oppressed benefits. Mm -hmm. So 
in training folks in anti-racist theater practices, there becomes this larger umbrella effect, if you will, so that it, they, it affects uh, and it sheds light on the issues of disability within mm-hmm. theater and accessibility issues and the biases, right? So that's some of what I'm working on. Wow. Amazing. It just, and I'm just, I had no idea what you were working on at the moment when I reached out to you to do this. And I just can't believe how just perfect having you on is. The fact that your current projects align so well with what we are trying to do with this podcast too, is just such a stroke of, you know, fate in a way. (laughs) So thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, the next segment that we do uh, is actually called We See You, where we do a shout out for um, someone within the community who, um, you know, a person or an organization who is doing exactly that for the disabled community is shedding light on uh, representation or just on um, just existing in the world in theater or not um, as a person with a disability. So do you have any any person or group that you want to give a shout out to? I do, actually. I want to give a shout out to Greg Mazgala, who is the artistic director of the Apathite, which is a theater company based in New York. And it's dedicated to the production of works that explore and illuminate the disabled experience. And to do that, they focus on newly commissioned plays by both established and up and coming playwrights and material that already exists in the theatrical canon featuring characters with disabilities or dealing with disabled themes such as like Oedipus, Richard III, The Elephant Man, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is this has to do with uh, making visible the human impact of disabled people throughout history. Um, You know, I believe deeply in empathy and theater's power to create and engender empathy in the audience. I know that Greg does as well. And that empathy can be practiced and perceptions can be changed and new communities forged through the collaborative and transformative power of the artistic process. Absolutely amazing. Um, yeah. That's <laughs> that's one heck of a we see you. I love that. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And we will absolutely have to explore their work. What was his last name again, Greg? Mazgala. M-O-Z-G-A-L-A. He's also a fantastic actor. He's a fantastic actor too. And everybody should know about him. Coming from you, I, I trust your opinion on that. So I, yeah, I will definitely have to look him up. And Greg, thank you so much for your work. And uh, we see you. We see you. <laughs> All right. So what we wanted to do today, since we have Kim, is we just want to talk about her experiences as a director, but you also, you know, for me, I think of you also as a movement instructor and as a performer yourself, like even as a director, you were always very, um, you just embodied the, the performer and their experience. And I just felt like it just, you connected with me on every level. So, you know, whether it's through directing or your um, work uh, as a instructor or teacher, we just want to talk to you about, your experience with and your thoughts about the representation of disability on stage. So just to get us started, um, can you give us just a short uh, general overview of what your background in theater is? I know it's a, it's a lot. so <laughs> That's a loaded question. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, well, actually, I, I started in dance and I started by studying ballet and then did that for a long time up until I was 18. And um, then I went to NYU, Tisch School of the Arts, and I studied acting there. And I was an actor for a long time. And then while I was at NYU as an undergrad, two things happened. I was studying at Circle in the Square Theater School, and I had a acting teacher, Alan Langdon, who brought in uh, Steve Pearson and Robin Hunt to teach something called Suzuki. And I was like, I have no idea what that is. But I mean, and he actually said to me, you should take this workshop. He knew I had a dance background. 
And I took this workshop and, you know, there are, there are seminal moments in one's lives that you can identify as being, ah, that is a marker for me that then sent me on a certain path. So that was, that was one of them. And I kind of took to the Suzuki training, like a duck to water. It just, it resonated with me. It, it is a, well, Kristen, you know what it is. <laughs> you know Suzuki training very well. <laughs> it's a it's a rigorous form of of movement training that that it is many things. But I think for me, what it did was it brought the the fluidity that I had trained in my body with ballet into what some look at and it looks a little bit like it can be perceived slightly as a martial art. I think, you know, I felt very powerful in it. And I also felt very calm inside of the training, which was, you know, for, for a 19 year old, a great place to, to inhabit um, when so much, is in flux at, at that point in one's life, or at least in my life, I was. Um, I also, at that time, being at NYU, there was a director named Anne Bogart who was working at the school, and she. If was... you're not a theater person, Anna and I are completely <laughs> geeking out right now. Oh yeah, <laughs> she says Anne Bogart, and I just lean back in my chair and like gasp oh, a little yeah. bit. Um, <laughs> And so she was doing viewpoints. This is, and actually, this is before, this is before Suzuki and viewpoints got put together. Actually, the two trainings, which have a very symbiotic relationship, and you know, both are very strong containers. The training gives great structure in order to uh, facilitate tremendous freedom for um, for the artist. So I, you know, was exposed to that as an undergrad at Tisch. I acted for a long time. I went to City Company, which is Anne Bogart's company, Saratoga International Theater Institute, to train with them. Um, and then I basically was was asked to teach Suzuki and Viewpoints out on the West Coast and started doing that. And then discovered I really love teaching. This, this, there's something about being of service really felt like a call. It was a calling for me. And, and prior to this, actually, I should say that in my early twenties, I taught at the national theater workshop of the handicap. And I should also probably let everyone know that I have never lived in the world unrelated to disability because I have a brother who's five years older than me, who is deaf. So while it, well, disability is not my immediate lived experience that, that way. I, I was the interpreter in my family for my brother, still am. And, you know, that has just, that's had a profound impact on me. He is, he's one of the most beautiful people I know for a variety of reasons. And that is also in part why I do what I do well, and the yeah. way that I do it. Yeah. Having grown up with, even if it wasn't your personal experience, with that awareness of that experience in other people and that it exists and that it is something to be cognizant of as an able-bodied, hearing-sighted person. Yeah. That's right. And that's that's one of the reasons we even started this podcast when we talked about it is we saw a lot of people who love people with limb differences with questions about how best to support them. Yeah. And so I think there is something to be said about being um, a loved one of a person living with disability that you're just as much in it as they are in some ways, you know? So yeah, that's really profound. I I think it's really interesting that you brought your experience as a dancer into your love of the movement techniques that you learned and then eventually went on to train in theater because um, I've mentioned on this podcast before, I always felt uh, like I would, I shouldn't use this language, but I felt like I would have been an excellent dancer if, you know, as a child, if I had thought that I would have been able to, you know, to do ballet or to do, um, to do it right, you know, um, and so I always felt like, you know, you know, I have strength, I have balance, I have extension. I could, I could do this just in a different way. I just don't know how that would work trying to integrate myself into an able-bodied class of people trying to 
do dance. So when I found viewpoints at Ohio State, where I went to um, undergrad, for me, it was just like, this is it. This is how I get that energy that I'd always felt like was in me that was close to a dancer and how I can use my body in this way that is, it's grounded, it's strong, but it's also very beautiful and very... um, And I can attest that actually, I can attest you're a beautiful dancer. Thank you. <laughs> I that is one thing I can say I've never heard in my life. So thank you very much. Do you remember what I think you said you worked for um, an organization, the National Theater Workshop of the Handicap of the Handicap? Mm-hmm. So you taught mm-hmm. there. Was that your first direct experience as an instructor? Yeah, um, I was in my I was in my early twenties, and um, it was founded by uh, a Jesuit. A uh, priest named uh, Rick Curry, and it's worth looking up because um, the work that he was doing and that then and the opportunities that he created for um, artists with disabilities was uh, in many ways ahead of its time. I mean, it, I came in and I think it had been around for a while, and um, the playwright Eric N. If you don't know who Eric N. is. He's worth, um, this is for everybody listening, uh, another beautiful soul, but he was the one who hired me actually to teach there. And I was put into, nobody gave me any guidance whatsoever. I was given a class to teach with people with all different kinds of disabilities. Mm -hmm. The first class, they wanted to show me, some of the students wanted to show me something they were working on for a performance. And a blind actress came out on stage in roller skates singing opera. And I just was like, I'm so down for this. Yeah. (laughs) And, and it was so theatrical. So why I love theater. I mean, I love film. I I love television stories. I love stories. Mm -hmm. Human beings are, we're, we're story animals, right? We, we love, stories. But the thing for me about theater and being in a theater is the transformative power that it has and that we're dealing with space. We paint three-dimensionally in time and space in the theater and we deal with space in a different way from from the two-dimensionality of film and television. And so to be in a room with other people whose it was pal- everybody's breathing changed in experiencing this performer doing what she loved with with tremendous gusto and artistry, um, skill, it was stunning. It was a stunning moment. I've ne- I mean, clearly never forgotten it. Um, and I may have had a syllabus, but that kind of went out the window. Sure. As soon as you see a blind performer on roller skates singing opera, you kind of have to adjust your plans a bit, probably. Well, what? Yeah, because what happens is you're like, oh yeah, wow, okay, like they just raised the bar, so it's on me. I have to meet that bar. I got to bring it. So yeah, that was my first experience. Yeah, it started there. I wow, I can't even imagine. At that point, I would just be asking, like, you teach me. <laughs> yeah, like, I'll just, I'll just watch. Exactly, and I think that kind of leads into another question that we had. Um, what is it about working with uh, performer performers with disabilities or different um, mobility concerns and everything that is important to you? Um, why is disability inclusion in theater an important thing? Because as you said, that was kind of a light bulb moment for you. Do you think that is something that would be common if more disability was represented on stage? Why is it important to include actors with disabilities? Well, representation matters. And mm-hmm. the the human condition isn't, you know, I'm going to say it, the, it's not white male cisgendered heterosexual. That's not the world I live in. I don't know anybody who lives in that world. Check me, actually. Charles Me has a um, uh, a manifesto that he's written on his website that's also worth reading that really says, like, the world is a complex and complicated place. Human beings are complex and complicated. We are many things. We are not one thing. Disability is a part 
a part of the human condition. And I actually, it's hard for me. Sometimes the word disability just, it really bothers right. me because, yep. because it's just yes. where that is, that's in, in comparison to what we have established as being what? able-bodied normal I you know it it, it it really gets under my skin <laughs> I've 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 found myself when we're having discussions on this podcast where it comes to that word and I I hesitate because yeah. I don't I don't love it and we've had uh we've mentioned it in several episodes but we did have a language and labels episode where we talked about this extensively it's it's not a great word and we've we both want to acknowledge again that people are not disabled. There are people who are disabled by the society that we live in mm-hmm. um, and by the lack of awareness, which is a huge reason why representation does matter mm-hmm. because people, you can't fix what you're not aware of. And that also goes for us. We've talked about, even though we are people who live with a limb difference, we're not aware of things that we participate in that disable others just because it is not part of our experience. And you can't, you can't know what you don't know until you see it. So yeah, totally agree. It's just, I think also everybody's story has a right to be told. I know there are people who would argue probably with me on the use of my word right there, who has a right. You know, I don't think I don't think narrative is the possession of one group of people or story is the possession of one group of people. Um, The other thing is the world is this magnificent place of difference. It is magnificent. And I was talking to someone the other day who was talking about the line in Hamlet about theater's role being to hold a mirror as twere up to nature. And I said, well, I actually don't believe that. What I believe is that we take the mirror and we smash it on the ground into a thousand different shards. And then we pick up those shards and we create a rich mosaic and it is reflecting back the human condition, the fullness and totality of the human condition and the tension that is created between those shards is also what it is to be human. Mm. So how are we making room for everybody Wow, and everybody's stories and to allow everybody to be seen and to be heard? Also, it's hard. I'm not Pollyanna-ish about this. It's hard. It's hard work. It's uncomfortable. It it puts us up against our own stuff. You know, working on American More, which is about a large black male American actor going into audition for the role of Othello and a young white male director telling him basically what it is to be a black man in America. Working on that play Mm. and with Keith over the course of six, seven years now, there were times in the room where we, you know, we'd have to raise a hand or we had a, a word to stop so that we could talk about what what we were feeling or what was coming up for us, what we were being put up against in ourselves with our own biases and, and you know, racism and all of that. Um, uh, and Keith and I have known each other. We met as undergrads at NYU and we've been friends for 30 years. So there's a, there's a deep and abiding love and trust between the two of us. It was still, and it still is, it's hard work, but we're in it together. Mm-hmm. We're really in it together. I just think. So representation, sorry, but representation matters. Yeah. 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 Go ahead, Anna. I, yeah. I was just going to say, I, this conversation is sort of a transformative moment for me in and of myself, just hearing the way you're speaking about this and um, representation and the people who are telling stories that are true to the world we live in. Because I know that for me for so long, it was a matter of like almost sub whether it was subconscious or not, okay, how do I hide my hand in this audition, mm-hmm. you know, to make sure that I have a chance at getting this role because mm-hmm. I I want to make sure that I am cast based on my acting ability and not necessarily looked not necessarily looked over because I do have this difference and hearing you speak about purposefully incorporating um these 
true elements of humanity into work is just it's it's kind of mind-blowing for me because it's something that I don't know that has ever been said out loud to me in this way. So just yeah, thank you. I've just got constant chills during this conversation. <laughs> I think one thing that you mentioned that just sort of struck me was um, how uncomfortable these conversations can be. Um, yes. And how I I, you know, I find myself thinking this every once in a while as, you know, things in our world come up and you see how different individuals react or you feel your own response to things. I feel like we've just moved away from being able to live in a place of even just temporary discomfort. We're so mm -hmm. resistant to that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a real shame. You know, I don't enjoy, you know, negative emotions anymore more than anyone else does. You know, it's not comfortable. It's not fun. But I just think it's really important to teach yourself how to live in those moments and in those feelings so that we can we can have these conversations, so that we can address these issues, and so that we can look each other in the eye. I think our inability to be uncomfortable is a is a huge part of of the resistance that we feel back on some of these issues. Yeah. And I think um, the fact that you have talked about the importance of creating a safe space to experience these things is incredibly important. I personally have worked in spaces where I did not feel comfortable voicing concerns or talking about things that were weighing on me. And I think that is a very critical part of theater. If you're going to have a production that's grounded in honesty in any way, shape, or form, you have to be able to be honest in the room with the people you're working with. And um, that sort of brings me to a um, another kind of question slash experience sharing that I sort of wanted to touch on. Um, so I'm interested in your thoughts on what happens when a director or a choreographer's vision may clash or misalign with the ability of a performer. So um, the example that I have is I was in a um, musical production in undergrad um, in which the choreographer, and I will I will say this right off the bat, he was also a student himself. He was in the master's program. And so I think there is some learning that may have taken place since then as well. So I will give him that credit. We were in a musical and there was a scene where the characters were all in gym class together. And the choreography involved doing movements that you would find in gym class. And one of those movements was push-ups. And I have talked on the podcast, I think, before about the fact that I just hate push-ups. I've, <laughs> I've always struggled with them. It's very difficult for me to put that much weight on my wrist. But it, it was this person's vision that it was going to be like a, a – almost like a singing in the round, you know, of people doing these different movements. And I very meekly raised my hand when we got to the part where he was going to start choreographing these and just said, you know, like – I can't really do a push-up. And he his response was to say, well, no, never say can't. And I, I thought to myself, okay, I understand that. But now I'm embarrassed because I feel like I'm missing an ability here. Like that's, a, you know, people think that's a nice sentiment. Like, oh, you can do anything. And it- Right, right. And it got to the point where, I mean, I was trying and it got to a point where it was so clearly not working that- <laughs> they had to readjust the choreography fairly late in the production. Um, and I've had this back and forth, like, well, was I the problem here? Like, you know, or was, was something not giving in his vision? Um, so how do you approach situations like that where you may have had an idea of something coming in that a performer isn't necessarily either comfortable with or is limited physically in their ability to do? So, first off, I uh, I want to say it wasn't you. I want to be okay. <laughs> really, really clear about that. Um, secondly, I hope it's okay for me to say this. I hate push-ups, and I can't do them. <laughs> so Your co-stars were probably thinking, yes, please cancel the push-ups. I doubt <laughs> right. anyone on that stage right. wanted to be doing push-ups. <laughs> well, and I said, I said, I was like, you know, I can do 
as many sit-ups as you want me to. I can do jumping jacks. I can do like so many other things are a possibility here. Just, you know, and he he had that push-up in his mind that wanted to, he wanted to make it work. So. So there, so there are a couple things for me. What we do is a collaborative art form. It just Mm -hmm. is. I can tell you, I have brilliant productions in my head, brilliant productions of, of staging of shows that no one will ever get to see except for me because it's, <laughs> because it's only me in my head making them as a director, right? What mm-hmm. we do is we work collaboratively with other artists and that requires listening to, taking in, seeing who is before us and, and the totality of, of, of who that person is. You know, I actually think, I was just thinking in my head. I was choreographing in my head. The the, <laughs> the moment of doing like push up, it would be actually it would have been I think maybe funny if push up, push up, push up, sit up, push up, push up, push. Uh, you know, maybe you would have felt singled out. I don't know, but I just there there was an opportunity there, honestly, to to find probably something even bigger more more interesting in some ways in the choreography i don't know the choreography i hope a choreographer i hope he's doing well um i do think you're right that that there was a a lot of growing you know a a grad student he was probably also feeling the pressure of and i know this because i teach grad students of it has to be this way the way i see it and the perfection of that because that's of course because it's an extension of me as an artist i think as time passes one learns to to um, let go of of certain things that you're holding on to that that actually don't work for the work anyway, um, and I think Kristen is right too. I think that he thought that he was. I mean, this is all conjecture because I don't know the person, and they should answer this for themselves. Of course, they, re- they really thought that they were saying something helpful, you know, and positive with "never say can't" or right. But in doing that, right, what in that moment, they're negating you and not really listening to you, not really seeing you, right? And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, it's funny. I was thinking, Kristen, about when we were working on on Good Woman. Does she have any words of advice for me or things that she wanted to say to me that I could have done better? Did I did I take care of her? You know, did I take care of you? Um, this isn't me about like, you know, going fishing, but really wanting to know, because I think in the time since we've worked, which one was that? 2008? Yeah. It was back in 2008. Wow. Yes. So 12 years ago, so much has changed in terms of, I think what the performers in the room, what the actors in the room feel that they can voice. Yes. Does that make sense, Anna? Absolutely. Yeah. And that 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 you have a right and an agency. There's a there's the old school thinking of you have to do exactly what the director says. I mean, I came up through this tradition. I worked with Robert Wilson. I did a I did an opera, I did Salome with him at La Scala, and I was put in a a metal corset thing that literally cut into my ribs. I was bleeding. I came off stage mm. and and I oh. and People saw this and, and I was like, don't say anything. Don't say, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to yeah. be the problem. Right. Right. You don't want to um, interfere with the work or the that's, vision. Exactly. That's yeah. right. And, and the thing is, is that Anna saying what you said is also doing the work. Hmm. Yeah. Speaking up, advocating for yourself. It's doing the work. Wow. And it's important. And this is also about, again, representation, you know, that to, to expect, to expect a company or, or, or a production where everybody is perfect and homogenized. Mm -hmm. Again, that's not the world I live in. And I think 
for anyone who you know hasn't had the experience in theater, you will sometimes when you go to an audition, there will be questions on you know the little form that you fill out about are you comfortable doing this? Just you know, how do you feel about this? Would you be okay? You know, whether it's a nudity, a kissing scene, a romantic scene, or you know, they could ask about you know if you really have this specific need to have this physical activity performed on stage and you need people who can accomplish that for you, you could think about that ahead of time or ask that on a form, I guess, and then exclude anyone whose response is anything other than yes, absolutely. But I don't think that is the ideal answer to this issue. Well, it's not the ideal issue, but I think what you're saying about having a question on a form about physical limitations or anything like that, right? I, I, I think that's fine to ask right. yeah um but i'm flashing on i'm flashing on moments of good woman with you Kristen. i'm thinking remember the remember the moment when you and michael were doing the duet and the mm. mylar was raining down on you and it was a metaphor for the two of you having sex it was a very slow motion um dance slash like in- interpretive movement it was so beautiful. You were so beautiful. <laughs> Sorry. I know I was the director. Maybe I'm not supposed to say that. But it was a really beautiful <laughs> moment. It was really, and there were three gods above you who were, right, the three gods. On this amazing who, scaffolding set. That was, yeah. it was just a playground. That, oh, yeah, anyway. Kevin Rigdon. I remember that that specific um, portion of of the production very well. Yes, I loved what we made. I love that there was a young boy who was about nine years old in the lobby. I had no idea who he was. Came up to me after the show and just was aghast and was so excited by it and hadn't like. And part of it was you're right. The scale of of Kevin Rigdon's set and his lighting and the scaffolding, it was a jungle gym. And each one of you took hold of it and made it your own. And yes, it was all the movement and the, and the, the Tai Chi dance that we made together, right? That came out of all of the, the gesture and movement work. But that moment with you and Michael, Michael Bishop, right? That was his last Michael name. Bishop, Michael Bishop, yes. Beautiful actor. I just remember it, it being this suspended moment in time of poetry on stage. But what I remember is your leg wrapped around and then this, this beautiful porta bra that you did back uh, and, and just all of that. And um, I don't remember if it was Jack or if it was you, Kristen, who told me about your limb difference. And I was like, okay, well, I'm just casting the best actor. I, I'm okay. <laughs> and, and then I, I was like, yeah, I'm, pa- I'm casting the best actor for the role. Oh, they have, okay. She has a limb different. Yeah. Well, okay. Mm-hmm. I don't remember if that was any question going into the audition or if we had had any conversations about that ahead of time. So I don't, I didn't know if you had cast me with, you know, knowing that that existed or not, but if, if there was a moment afterwards where you had a realization about my limb difference, I I don't remember it. You know, I don't, and I don't, I don't really even remember going up to you and I know we talked about it. I, I know that because dialogue between, you know, the actors and the directors, especially with such a movement heavy production like that is important. So we definitely talked about it, but I never felt unsafe. I never felt like I was bringing anything down. I do remember at most it was, if if I can't do this this way, can we find a way for me to do it so that it, it is still the vision that you want, it is comfortable for me, and we both will feel like we accomplished what we wanted with it. And that was always the energy that I felt like you gave me in re- either in response to me or with an idea. That was always it. How can we do this? How can you help me, you know, accomplish this? It's just, it was so collaborative and it just, I think that's why that uh, production stays so important in my mind because not only working with you, but it was one of the most physical and movement heavy things I've ever done. And having that be a positive experience with someone who not only knows what she's doing, but has the empathy that you have it made it what could have been, and I'm sure has been for other performers uh, with disabilities, 
it could have been so harmful. And instead, it's such a highlight. So no, I don't, I don't remember anything ever being off the table or being too much. And I think it was just, it was the conversational and open and honest uh, relationship that we had as director and performer that made all the difference. And something you said, Kristen, brings me to another question that we had wanted to ask. Um, Kim, do you think there is a point at which an actor should disclose um, a limb difference or a limitation or anything like that? Or is that up to the collaborative work to discover? Because that was something I had experienced in recent years. There was was a part in a a full-length play um, at a theater here in Columbus that I was interested in. And it had said in the character description that she was a dancer and there would be light dancing. And like I've said, I felt like I I can do that. I know I can, but I was struggling in my head to think, do I put on my audition sheet that I have um, a limb difference in my foot, but say like state clearly, I still think I can, you know, perform this role well, or do I not say it and then risk if I do get cast, this director that I I didn't know, I had no personal experience with them at the time, do I risk them maybe feeling like I cheated them somehow was how I felt. Um, and I, I, I didn't want to say anything that would, that would make it less likely, that would hurt my chances of being cast. But I also didn't want to not say any, you know, I wanted to be upfront about it, but with the underscore being, I still think I can do this. Basically, like, don't discount me. I think I can I think I can be as good as anyone else. And it just felt so ridiculous. Um, so yeah, that was where my question about how should we approach disclosing a disability in a in a situation like this, like as performers, where do you think that responsibility is such an ugly word, but where does that fall? This is a much more (laughs) complex question than I originally thought, actually, because I'm, I'm, I'm all for transparency. Like if somebody walks in the room and they're black, you know, they're black, right? Mm -hmm. You know, somebody, somebody comes into audition and they use a wheelchair, you know, that they're in a wheelchair. But I also understand the genuine concern about being worried that that your chances like you'll be taken off the table if it, one of the things i was thinking about was actually fear like i really think at the core of this is fear and it's fear of difference mm. fear of also what some people would perceive maybe as i'm going to have to do extra work rather than being curious about the opportunities that casting an actor with limb differences or uh, a performer with disabilities offers. It's just, you know, tremendous opportunity for everybody um, and artistically and and growth and all of that. Now, this is me. (laughs) Yes, we are. We are talking to someone who (laughs) has an awareness and experience with, I think, and you know what, I think, so if I was coming to audition for you, I wouldn't have these concerns because yeah, I, I wouldn't know want you. you to hide. I don't want you to hide. I don't want anybody to hide. That's the thing. The authenticity of who you are. Because the other thing is this, your, your limb difference makes you the artist that you are. It's an integral part mm-hmm. of who you are. It's an integral part of how you express yourself. Right. How, how your body moves, yeah. how you tell your stories. It's all there. And I certainly, I'm not interested in hiding that, right? When it's um, a a theater you aren't familiar with or a director that you haven't worked with before, I think the fear is that you're not going to get someone who has that enthusiasm that, you know, you and, and other people might. So here's, here's the kind the crappy thing is that you're going to have to take that chance. Yeah. You're, you're always going, mm-hmm. but I think, I think it's, Again, it's just, it's a, it's, it's a part of who you are. And, you know, Anna, you talking about hiding your arm, it's, uh, I'm so sorry. You know, I wonder about 
I know you're asking me, and I also know I'm kind of like, yeah, I'd want to know. I mean, <laughs> I'd be curious. Like, my sense is from both of you that you're both saying that you've had to hide this, or you wait until like you get the call back, and then maybe you mention it there or something like that. I, I hope that that we are that our industry is changing enough that this isn't does not continue to be uh, an issue for mm-hmm. you. I know too, in talking to Greg, how much disability gets left out of the conversation for social justice, racial justice, all of that in in our industry, mm-hmm. and that there's so much work that still needs to be done. Um, I mean, there always there always is, but um, I guess I'm just answering the question for me. I can't answer it for anybody else. I would want to know. I'd be you know excited. <laughs> Because yeah, like, yeah, you know, and again, I go back. I cast the best actor for the role at the end of the day, and I think about when I did Sit and Spit. So Sit and Spit is this piece that Charles Me wrote. He calls it a musical. It's it's his version of a musical, and it's about it's about the artist James Castle. James Castle was born profoundly deaf, and over the course of his lifetime, he created over twenty thousand works of art, mm. and his his stories. His work, his art is extraordinary. I encourage everybody to go and check him out. But he was born profoundly deaf. He lived in Idaho. He grew up on three successive farms. The story goes, he never learned to read, write, sign, or speak. But over the course of his lifetime, he created these works of art. And the art was his language. Hmm. He did sign, though. He's, he, he, went, he went to the Gooding School for the Deaf. He learned some sign language there. He had an older sister, Nellie, who was deaf um, she, from scarlet fever uh, that she contracted when she was four. She had gone to the Gooding School for the Deaf as well. She learned to sign. And they home signed. And when, when I was working on the show, one of the things I said, I first did it at Arizona State University. At the time, the head of the program there was Jake Pinholster. And there were a couple things in the script that I just was really clear to him. We needed, we needed a, a deaf actor to play James Castle. I was not going to have a hearing actor play deaf. Just, you know, couldn't do that. So he figured out how to raise the money or find the money to bring in Robert DeMeo, who's this phenomenal actor, deaf actor, to play James Castle. And then there's a chorus of performers with Down syndrome in the piece. And we and it wasn't about ignoring that. We partnered with a local company that works with. Um, it's called um, Detour. It's called Detour. It was such a fantastic experience for everybody. The piece was beautiful, and then I continued to work on it in subsequent years, and eventually um, did it in in New York. So the chorus, the original chorus with performers with Down syndrome was actually not financially viable for me and my company oh. to, to produce. So what I did was I, t- I made the narrator of the piece a performer with Down syndrome, this actor named Chris Lopes. And the piece had a, a variety of, of actors with, with different disabilities as well. Um, and I auditioned actors and I went with the best actors who came into the room. Chris blew me out of the water. He just blew me out of the water. And, you know, his parents, they dropped him off for his audition. They left. And he gave this beautiful audition. And I asked his parents afterwards if they had worked with him, if they had coached him. And they said no. And he was memorized. He had memorized a speech. He was just... um a joy to work with. There was another performer with Down syndrome, Karen, and she also, there, there was a dance cause you know, <laughs> there's going to be, there's going to be dance in my pieces. And the structure of the piece was a gestured dance based on a hula, a hula dance done to the song Lorena, which is a, a really beautiful Appalachian tune. And one night, the actress playing the mother got really sick and couldn't do the show. And nobody, well, we didn't have any understudies. We're, we're a scrappy company. So I had to, I had to step in and play the mother. Now, 
I, I, I choreographed the dance with, with the actors, all of that. I was guaranteed to screw it up, right? <laughs> when we got to the dance, I will never forget this. I think we're going to get emotional. So Karen is next. But she's, she's this petite powerhouse of an actress. And she could sense that I, I was nervous. But I'll never forget this. We're, we, were doing, we were doing the dance. I look over to her and she looks up at me and she is guiding me through the whole dance. She was my anchor in the whole piece, you know? And I don't know where I'm going with the story. But what I do know is that a, that, that Sutton Spit, you know, it's this nonlinear piece that tells the story of this artist, James Castle. And we told it with a cast with a with a company of actors who is not perfect quote unquote who is not you know your traditional beautiful mm-hmm. what what people would expect from a musical let's say right mm-hmm. and i and there are people there were people who came to see it who i'd come out afterwards in the lobby and i'm not going to name names but some really fancy people and they were just wrecked and crying and but then I'll never forget this, a, a playwright who I, you know, a major American playwright stood there and said to me, I'm so profoundly affected and I don't know how I got here. Mm. I don't know how this happened. And I, I thought, yeah, that's the deal. Yeah. Because yeah. if you're thinking, if you're thinking about the mechanics of it while you're experiencing it, then I've done something wrong. But if we as a company can give you an experience and that you experience something, you're experiencing this world, right? Because what we do as theater artists is we are creating worlds that have never existed before. And then when the show is over, it's never going to exist again. But in that, in between, in that time in between, we're actually offering the world, the existing world, a new way to organize itself, a new way for society to organize and represent itself, which is this kind of radical inclusion that is about saying yes to diversity, that when we cultivate diversity, when we cultivate inclusion out of that innovation, great innovation comes. And anybody in, in any of the STEM concentrations would say that as well. And we, there needs to be more of this happening in, in the art that we're making too. So I'm just gassing on now. But I, I think yeah. that's, that's some of it's it. It's amazing. And I think one of the things that really resonates with me is like letting the actors for whom this part was written be the actors who tell that story. Because as, yes. as Kristen and I have discussed before, people, you know, who aren't, as familiar with theater will be like, oh, so you're an actor. So I bet you're a great liar, you know? And we, we just look at each other and we're like, in fact, quite the opposite because theater is so much about telling truth. And when you have somebody who has that lived experience on stage, you're going to get so much more truthfulness and honesty out of them than you will somebody who's playing at it. You know, I think there's quite the controversy right now about a movie coming out um, that has a non-autistic actor playing an autistic child. Yeah, musician. And um, I do. I just think it's so disingenuous. And when you have somebody who has to play at it, you're never going to get the same result as somebody who has lived that. And so hearing about that production with people in those roles that were made for those roles. And I think it's also so frustrating as an actor as well to see somebody who is, you know, quote unquote, able-bodied or normal, so to speak, playing a role that you're like, but this was meant for like me, you know, I could do this and I could do it with truth. Right. I think, I think seeing that and then seeing the opposite of that is always so invigorating to know, like they let this person tell their truth. And yeah, I just think that's lovely. You know, inside of that, cause I'm very aware of that film. Again, I want to go back to a core issue there, I think, is fear. Mm-hmm. And even though Sia said that's based on somebody she knew and that they had uh, originally cast uh, a person, a, a performer with autism who then opted out, my question there is, so then what stopped you from from continuing down that path? Right. Is mm-hmm. it, and I think, is it fear of the hard work? 
Yeah. She wouldn't be where she is if she hasn't done a lot of hard work. Of course. So I just wonder, <laughs> I have a, you know, I have a lot of questions about what, what caused her to stop the investigation, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think it's also, it's the fear of the unknown because when we work with, choose to work with those who are different from us and from what we know, it goes back to what we were talking about in the very beginning of this. It is going to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It will challenge us. It will put us up against ourselves and our stuff. And everybody's in a different place in their evolution as to whether or not they're ready to take that on. I think also it's people think, you know, whether it's directors or other members of a cast or choreographers, you're not only thinking about the end product and what will get the best performance and resonate best with people, but it's the experience of you quote unquote, have to work with that person. Like if you, if you have a blind performer, is your space accessible for them? Do you even know how to approach that? And that requires expanding your own thinking and abilities and People are afraid of doing that, which is so sad because what an what an opportunity to challenge yourself and to grow yourself as, you know, whatever your field is, um, but also just as a person, a person who is aware and inclusive. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's just, I'm sure it's just easier not to a lot of the time. Although it would be easier, I don't think it would be nearly as beautiful of an no. end product. No. Uh, and it and it actively works against what you know a lot of um, people and companies in the arts are projecting or claiming to be, which is inclusive and part of the part of the active movement against resistance to these communities who are who are actively left out and disabled and marginalized. Um, yeah, if if we want to be part of the voice towards undoing that, doing this work it has to be part of it. It just, it has to be, you know, uncomfortable or difficult or time consuming as it, as it is. So this is something I I, I'm working on. um, I'm hoping to be able to offer this class next semester, next fall, which is about inclusive and accessible theater making and design, Mm. because we talk a lot about the casting process, right? The casting of, of, of differently abled artists we don't talk a lot about design backstage and accessibility Mm. we don't talk about also about the design on stage and accessibility and what that means and we have we make adjustments for theaters will will have two performances where they bring in a you know sign language interpreters asl interpreted performances but shouldn't a deaf person have the right just like anybody else to be able to choose any performance that they want to go to and know that they will be supported um uh i understand the economics of this i I can hear in the back of my head some people screaming as they're listening to this right now probably about like it costs so much money okay well let's figure that out you know because yeah when we have when we have relaxed performances for audience members with autism right how does that change the design of the space? I mean, this is, I have a giant fantasy of being able to have us. While I don't want to be running or be responsible for running a space, I think at some point it's probably going to end up being inevitable because I have a, I have this fantasy about really working very closely with architects to create fully accessible, fully inclusive performance space and, and rehearsal spaces that it's, it's everywhere. The accessibility is everywhere and that the staging Mm -hmm. space can be configured in a variety of ways to support the performers. Right. Uh, so that they, I mean, you know, you, both of you know this, that, that when you've been in productions where you have been supported, it changes how you perform. It changes your relationship to the material, yes. to the company, all of that. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I just do, I'm doing a lot of thinking about that right now. I don't know why what you just said brought this specific memory from a good woman back, but 
your support to the performers, it wasn't just about, you know, the movement and our abilities um, in that regard. But I remember there was an issue with one of my, um, it was one of my costume pieces. And I I had a lot of quick changes. And it was, I think it was the main uh, costume that I wore for the majority of, of the performance. And there was something about it that was not comfortable or it just didn't fit right. And I just, I remember I didn't say anything. Um, and then I remember Kim, you actually, I think you observed one of the costume changes we were getting into like dress rehearsals. And it was like, this doesn't work for her. This is like, no, like this isn't comfortable. We need to fix this. So it was, yeah, just that feeling of support was just everywhere. Uh, working with you. so And I think having somebody who is in that leadership position in a production who encourages you to stand up for yourself and speak up for yourself will translate into other performances that you're involved with. Once you do that learning of, oh, it is not only okay, but encouraged to speak up for myself, right. then you can bring that into other situations as well. I think the the fear is that, you know, there's the perception of performers being demanding or difficult. So it's just, you never want to seem ungrateful or unappreciative of anyone involved in a production. So, but you know, there's, there's a definite difference between, you know, being a difficult performer and just asking for what you need. And if you can't get it, that's, that's okay. But you know, asking is fine. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also about how making sure we are humane with one another. Is that too much to ask? No. No, it should not be. It should not be. Yeah. I think the thing is, is again, with what we do, with what we make, we expose people Mm. to something. What they do with that information is up to them. I can't control what they do with the information. Right. Oh, Kim, I I mean, I could talk to you all day. Well, I think that just means that that we're going to have to when when we're we're back together again, I will have to come. I haven't been to Ohio, so I'm coming oh. and and sit down and break bread with both of you, and you know, and maybe we can find a way to actually make something together. The stuff we could do. It would be one hell of a party. It absolutely yes, would. It would. <laughs> yes, when the world becomes a little less on fire, we will get you to Ohio. We will absolutely. I would love to sit down and have yeah. a, just even more of a conversation with you. You have really been just a joy to speak to today. And I would love to travel and come see one of these productions that you've talked about. Yes. They just, they just sound phenomenal. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Kim, again, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Um, We really appreciate speaking with you. Where can people go if they want to find out more about you and your work? Do you have a web presence? I do have a web presence. I have a website and you can go to www.kimkimweild.com. I have an Instagram I'm on a different kick right now with Instagram, but you can certainly find me there and my photography. Uh, and it's Kim Weild, W-E-I-L-D, there. I am currently not on Facebook. Sometimes it's good to step away. <laughs> yeah. And you can also, you can email me through my website as well. And you can also message me on Instagram. People who message me on Instagram, I I actually respond to them. It's me responding. Fantastic. And we have a social presence as well. If you go to Life and Limb series on Facebook, uh, Life and Limb Pod on Twitter, and Life and Limb Podcast on Instagram, you can find us. Always send us private messages, mention us in comments, whatever you would like to do. If you have questions for us, if you want to share your stories of being a performer with a limb difference, we would love to hear it. Kim, thank you again for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you soon. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening. <laughs>